Hi there. My name is Katie DeFiori, and I am the network manager for the Democracy Group Podcast Network. This is a special episode from the Democracy Group, which the show you are currently listening to is a proud member of. The podcasts in our network strive to uncover what is broken in our democracy and find ways to fix it. To discover all of our shows and learn more about the Democracy Group, please visit us at democracygroup.org. Democracy is very much a group activity. Inside, we come together to debate, to discuss, do the work of government, and make laws. Outside, at least sometimes, we protest and hold rallies. But much of this is not possible right now. Social distancing presents a tremendous challenge to the work of people who want to reform democracy. In this episode, we're going to look at the barriers and the opportunities as we deal with the COVID pandemic. I'm Richard Davies, co-host of the weekly Solutions Journalism podcast, How Do We Fix It? And joining me are four other podcasters and colleagues in the Democracy Group podcasting network. Mila Atmos of Future Hindsight, Juleka Lantigua-Williams from 70 million, Kara Ong Whaley of Democracy Matters, and Lee Drutman from Politics in Question. First, Kara, as the Associate Director of the James Madison University for Civic Engagement, uh, you're very much involved in this whole question of democracy reform. So how do you see this strange moment that we find ourselves in? Thank you so much, Richard. Um, this is this is indeed a very extraordinary moment in time. Um, you know, certainly this is going to be a defining or key inflection point uh, in our democracy and and in our society. I think there's a couple of different points um, that that I have been you know contemplating and thinking about. Um, first, you know, we already knew before this crisis that we had high levels of socioeconomic um, and racial inequalities in our society. And I'm concerned about how this will exacerbate those inequalities. And especially as we think about inequities in access, voice, and participation in governance and and who has access to policy and decision-making processes. Um, so that's one thing that you know we are we are really trying to think about is how do we, in a time of physical distancing, how do we ensure that we can be more inclusive of voices who traditionally have not been at the table um, and and may at this time be be struggling even more um, uh, in terms of in terms of access. This is a pretty broad question. So anybody else want to jump in? Sure. I'm happy to chime in. It's something that as someone who's been working in criminal justice reform for over four years, I think about a lot, um, which is about how incomplete our democracy is, because we are really comfortable with having you know, two million plus citizens and residents and people who would be contributing to our democracy, just completely away, disenfranchised, unable to vote. Even when they do return, they're still denied the right to participate fully in our democracy through the vote. And so I feel like COVID, the pandemic, the fact that we have had to rethink what it means to still be active in our democracy making um, has really brought to bear not just the inequities and the inequalities, but also the necessity to have a much more active uh, sense of democracy as a verb, democracy as an, as an action that we can all be part of. 
Lee Druckmann, in your recent article entitled The COVID-19 Blame Game uh, is Going to Get Uglier, you talk about how hyperpartisanship has made the coordination of a national response to the COVID pandemic so much more difficult. Uh, do you have a few examples? Well, if you look at the fights that Trump has been having with the Democratic governors, uh, I, I think that's a to me to me a striking example. You know, in a normal time, you would expect the governors and the president to work together, and for the country, frankly, to come together and to unify. But this moment has, I think, exacerbated a lot of the divisions that are already uh, tearing our politics apart. I think the. Uh, the fact that this virus has hit urban areas much harder than rural areas so far has has played dangerously on the urban-rural divide, uh, which is also our partisan divide. And you know, I think the uh, partisan divide over trust and expertise and in, in science uh, ha has made this a lot worse than it certainly needed to be. I think most countries around the world have been certainly dealing with the coronavirus uh, as well. But I, it seems like in the U.S., we are uniquely incapable of, of coming together as a country. And that's you know, a really dangerous thing. A, a hyper-partisanship you know, is bad for our politics in many ways. But in this moment, it does very much feel like it has uh, made things much worse. And you know, I wrote a book that came out earlier this year in which I talked about uh, the two-party doom loop of escalating hyper-partisanship. And at the time, I thought it was just a, a metaphor, but now I, I worry that it might be all too realistic of a description. Mila, how do you see this, this crisis right now? So I think what the crisis has really shown us is that it is affecting people differently in different income brackets in different areas. And it's really showing where the most severe cracks are. And by that, I mean people who are going to work every day to still stock shelves or still do delivery of food where some people can shelter at home. Uh, you know, people like us, we can work from home. But for many people, there is no choice. I saw a picture of just maybe a week and a half ago at rush hour in New York City. And the subway was totally full because they have distanced out the service because there aren't a lot of people on the subway. But so come rush hour, the same people who are still going to work in that capacity, still in those capacities rather, they still have to go. And so they can't wait 20 minutes for the next train that normally arrives at rush hour every three minutes. And now they have to all jam in. So this whole crisis is is affecting uh, many people in, in much more dramatic ways than others, especially those who have to go to work and, and are also in uh, crowded cities and use public transportation. Right. Right, right, exactly. And I think this is really, you know, one of the things where I feel like we're starting to understand more how much we rely on them to work in these jobs. And I think a lot of people would normally say, oh, you know, we don't need to pay them $15 an hour or whatever it is. But now actually we should think about giving them hazard pay because if anybody is 
at the front line, it's these people who have to be out and about and are in contact with people every day, all day. So that threatens Lee Drutman to make uh, our partisan political environment even more divided when this pandemic, or at least the very worst parts of this pandemic, are over. Yeah, I, I certainly uh, do do fear that. You know, I think you know. In some ways, I, I want to kind of link this to the first question that you asked, and, and the the this idea that a lot of uh, things that we have tolerated in our society have become intolerable. The the level of unfairness and injustice and inequalities, uh, I think, have been certainly laid bare. And uh, I think thinking about the broad scope of history, these moments of crisis are ultimately moments of reckoning when it's clear that the old ways were flawed. And, you know, it's like a a rotten door that the the coronavirus has just kicked in, but we need a new door to replace it. So there is this moment of opportunity uh, to kind of do some big rethinking. And I think that's why these conversations are so important and essential to be having, because it's it's a rare moment in which I think ideas and actions can uh, matter. And and yet, you know, in the short term, I, I, I feel very pessimistic. It's, you know, not just uh, you know, the, the, the polarization, uh, but it's also the fighting over voting. Uh, we are going to have an incredibly contested November election as President Trump has decided that voting by mail is somehow a bad thing, even though he himself votes by mail. And so states are going to be scrambling to, to ramp up their ability to handle a large number of absentee ballots. Uh, there will be all kinds of inequities in that. Uh, the, the results could be disputed. Uh, so I, I, short term, I think we're in for even more chaos. And you know, my hope is that long term, that chaos leads to a fundamental rethinking where we can think about these injustices that we've been discussing here and, and many others have been discussing. Certainly, I, I can't think of a time in which we've had as much awareness of the, the, the injustices in our society as in this moment. Kara, this, this voting crisis, this threat to the election of 2020, is that something you're dealing with on your podcast, Democracy Matters? Yes, we we are. Um, we're actually in the process right now, and we'll have an episode out soon about the question of, of voting and the different options that are going to be available, different contingencies that that we should be thinking through, um, and and so that is in the works. And so stay tuned on that. <laughs> um, you know, I think there there are a lot of questions, and I think this this also goes back to the hyperpartisan nature of our political context, because you know, whereas you. Know, we had already, you know, now when we talk about vote by mail, for example, we're already seeing that just saying those words has now uh, a partisan context and a partisan meaning, right? Um, although there, even though there is new research out just this week um, from Andrew uh, Hall and, and the Stanford Democracy and Polarization Lab, um, suggesting that when they look at 
uh, county level results, um, you know, that there there isn't a, a partisan, you know, a, a partisan advantage to one party or the other um, when we're thinking about that. But when you look at the media conversation, right, um, and and sort of the, the conversation in the political class, um, there's already been um, the politicization um, uh, and, and of this question. And, and so that is, I think that is deeply concerning. Um, I think we're also going to need to talk about questions about how we are going to get the right information to people. Um, you know, I work most directly with students, which um, are a traditionally uh, low turnout population. Um, and students also tend to be privileged, at least most of them do, in the sense that they have a choice to vote either where they go to school um, or wherever their quote unquote permanent address may be. Right. So there's there's already, you know, some disparities there in terms of trying to get them the correct information, um, uh, correct technical information. And then we also have, you know, the the motive, you know, mot- we have to overcome motivational barriers to voting um, because they don't necessarily see themselves represented in the process. Um, uh, so so there, there are hurdles there as there are hurdles hurdles for for other traditionally um, marginalized and underserved groups, um, particularly when we're talking about representation. And so but we're seeing these questions, um, you know, take on uh, that we're seeing a lot more challenges to ensuring full participation um, in this moment because of the hyper partisanship. Um, And and so I see this moment as, as, as sort of different from from other moments in history in that sense of, you know, instead of really coming together, we're being torn apart. And part of that is, you know, wrapped up in, um, you know, what what Lee has already talked about in terms of the partisan nature of the blame game. Um, but uh, but but also in terms of how we saw the initial rollout and response um, and Shana Guderian and others um, also have some new research out just showing how there's much more anxiety among, you know, Democratic voters, traditionally Democratic voters, um, uh, minority groups, um, younger generations, um, and, and that they are responding and following health guidelines versus those um, who are now more aligned with the Republican Party, which tend to be older, white, and male. Speaking of marginalized groups uh, that you mentioned, Kara, uh, Jaleka's podcast, 70 Million, is all about what's broken inside our prison and criminal justice system here in the U.S. Tell us, Jaleka, what's changed as a result of of COVID-19? Thank you for the question. I really appreciate it. Um, a few things have changed. Um, I think that unfortunately, COVID has really put the spotlight on the overall risk as a society that we take. And because this has to do with our health, right, with our vitality, with our, literally with our lives, it has really put it in stark perspective how warehousing people in confined environments, in poor living conditions, with you know, lacking medical attention, lacking proper nutrition, that now poses a real risk to the rest of us, right? So that's at the very top level of what COVID has brought to light, that our incarceration systems, because there are multiple systems that play, there isn't a singular system, but that the interplay of the incarceration systems in the United States, from the local and county jails to the state jails to the federal jails, is now posing a massive 
uh, public health risk to the rest of us. Um, and so that that's on level one. Uh, on level two, we're also looking at the cost, right? Because now we're comparing, you know, what is the cost of housing someone in a federal prison? It, it's over $100,000, right? Versus the cost of the student loans, you know, versus the cost of a public state university versus the cost of a training program. And so now there are people looking at the numbers and saying, this just doesn't make fiscal sense for us to be maintaining this system. And then when we sort of like pin it down to, for example, the epicenter of the epidemic, which is New York City, we'll look at the example of Rikers Island, right? So Rikers Island is a notorious jail. It's, you know, one of the worst places to be housed when you are waiting trial. Now, there are people now at Rikers Island who contracted COVID by merely being unable to pay for bail, to go back home and await their trial. That is unconscionable on one level, but it, again, it exacerbates the danger to the public health. Jaleika, are there examples of prison systems or jail systems that have been worse or, or perhaps better than others in regard to uh, the, the, the pandemic outbreak? So I can tell you that uh, one governor, I believe it was the governor of Indiana, he used his clemency power to release 452 people who had a mere months to serve on their sentences. And so he commuted their sentences and he was able to send them home. There were other places, you know, in specific counties. And again, on the local level, we haven't seen any action on the federal level. But on the local level, we have seen that counties have said, "Okay, we're going to send you back home. You don't have to await trial. You don't have to make bail. Go back home because you're otherwise, we're going to put you basically in at risk for getting this. And so there hasn't been even any national guidance coming from the administration about how we can mitigate the potential exposure that people can have from uh, the, the packing of, of populations in, in jails and, and prisons. Another group where uh, COVID can have catastrophic consequences are people who live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Mila, on Future Hindsight, you've been speaking with experts who are working to help people at the greatest risk. What are they seeing? So what they're seeing is that um, a lot of people are unbanked. I think the people who live paycheck to paycheck, many of them don't even have a bank account or many of them did not file taxes in 2018 because they made so little money. Uh, so I know that uh, if you did file in 2018, probably you have already received your $1,200 check from the government uh, this week, earlier this week. But that's basically, you know, a forward rebate for your taxes uh, it's not actually, I don't want to say handout, but it's not actually something that's just given to you. And really what we need is we need a giant bailout. Even uh, Barry Dillard today said, you know, everybody just needs a bailout and everybody needs to be given the money. And then we can figure out how to pay for it because with 22 million people unemployed officially, and there are many more, we're just basically free falling into the abyss. One of the ideas that Stephen Pimper had at the University of New Hampshire is to help people bank through the post office. And that used to be a thing in the 50s and 60s. And we could bring that back. And this way you could much easier with people who are unbanked, who are now actually most of the time at risk 
because they bank with uh, payday lenders, you know, who cash their checks for a fee. Uh, and then you could drop money to them immediately, you know, in a way that you could get your rebate, your future rebates right now for people who do have bank accounts. And I think, you know, that would be really efficient. I also spoke to the um, managing director of Give Directly, which is an outfit, a nonprofit organization that gives cash transfers, normally in Kenya, but they have done a lot of work here uh, after the hurricanes in Texas and in Puerto Rico, and they gave them gift cards, basically, or cash cards for $1,500. And so this is really hoping to catch people who are unbanked and don't have access to the $1,200 from the government. Those are two really constructive suggestions. Uh, We're talking about democracy in the time of COVID-19, a podcast series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Richard Davies from the Solutions Podcast, How Do We Fix It? I'm joined by Mila Atmos of of Future Hindsight, Jaleka Lantigua-Williams from 70 Million, Kara Ongweli from Democracy Matters, and Lee Drupman from the podcast Politics in Question. Let me throw out a question and see who answers it. And that is, in what ways could this pandemic be an opportunity as well as a disaster? Lee, I'll I'll answer this. I think it can be a tremendous opportunity. As I was saying before, I, I think if we look at from the long scope of history, that disasters have uh, been moments of of reckoning and rethinking and there's a you know a sense after a crisis that we can't go on the way that we've been going on and you know, I think it does create a, a tremendous opportunity but you know, a lot of that opportunity depends on what we do there are these brief windows in in politics in which things seem uncertain and the range of possibilities can suddenly expand. And it does feel like we are about to enter into one of those moments. I think for a long time, we've understood that the economy is rigged and unfair, uh, but there was a sense that we couldn't do anything about it. And for a long time, we've understood that our politics is broken, and there was a sense that we couldn't do anything about it. Uh, But I, I think we now realize that the stakes are too high not to do anything about it. Uh, And this is a a moment in which a lot of people are just tremendously engaged in what's happening in the world around them because everybody realizes that what happens beyond their lives affects their lives. And this is not a moment for staying silent. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. This is Juleika from 70 Million. Um, and it's it's for me, it's really clear that there was a whole group of American citizens who have known for decades, generations in some cases, and who have lived through the inequalities, but who have never had the power or the position to be able to do something about them. And so we have an opportunity here to bring people to the table and to leadership positions who have lived through the inequalities, who have found ways 
through just sheer resiliency to make do and to not only strive, but thrive through poverty, through unequal educational systems, through, you know, a crime bill that decimated millions of families in the United States. So I think that we need to take a hard look around and find people who have become experts in solving the problems that have come to light. Where I think we might become really wasteful is in our tendency to intellectualize things. And so I'm really scared about a lot of millions of dollars being spent on studies and research and trying to understand the psychological, emotional impact. All of that is really, really important, but it's not, it doesn't rank in my, in my opinion compared to restoring people and making them whole again and making sure that they get past COVID and land in a better place because there will be another COVID. Dr. Fauci has been telling us for 15 years to get ready for something like this. And he has already told us that this is going to happen again. And so we have to ensure that no American family feels the intensity of an earth-shattering event like this one, the way that millions of them are feeling it right now. And we have to do that by putting people at the front line who have been at the front line and not spending precious resources. I mean, today I learned that our PPP bill has already been defined. It's like it's already gone. We spent $350 billion in two weeks. You know, my business got $5,500 out of that. That's going to help me through exactly one month, you know? And so I am also one of those people who is experiencing the fact that the system that I've been paying into cannot now support me adequately. And so we've got to ensure that families, small businesses, students, people who are homeless, everyone at the periphery of the middle-class dynamic that makes the country run does not experience something like this the way that they've experienced it now. Let me ask Kara to respond. Uh, you're with the James Madison University Center for Civic Engagement. Uh, how do you react to what Jaleika said? I completely agree with with much of what Jaleika said. And I was also going to provide another perspective um, in, in this response in terms of seeing opportunities. And that is, you know, for for quite some time, our politics has been nationalized. And this could be a moment where responses are really happening at the state and local level um, to denationalize politics. This is an opportunity to bring local leaders into that decision-making process um, and, and to include communities who have traditionally been left out. Um, and again, you know, I think just kind of building on Jaleka's point, you know, to to bring them to the table um, in ways that that they have not been included in the past. You know, I think that would also have the chance of, of addressing and, and I, you know, this might be too Pollyannish of a view, but we do, you know, we do have good evidence that when we look at local politics, public opinion on, on, a, on a number of issues aren't as polarized as they are at the national level. You know, I see this as an opportunity to depoliticize some of those questions as well as bringing others into the conversations and and into decision-making positions. Mila Atmos of Future Hindsight, how do you see the, the, the potential for opportunities from this crisis? Well, there's so many opportunities, right? I think one of the things that um, we really have an opportunity with, which I was really surprised by, is, uh, is in housing the homeless, because that is an extremely vulnerable 
population that we have not paid attention to at all. But in the last stimulus bill in the CARES Act, there was $4 billion allotted to housing the homeless, whereas just you know, a few months ago, we were rounding them up and imprisoning them depending on where you live. So I think that's really important. And I think if we can make strides in having more funding for housing, that would be terrific. Uh, you know, we started basically right with the Reagan administration when he basically cut the budget, the federal budget for housing by 99%. And we're still suffering the fallout today. Most of the homeless are the working poor. You know, they have jobs, but they live in shelters or they live in hotels. And so many hotels have been, I have heard on the radio in several areas, converted to house the homeless. And Picking up on Kara's point, Lee Drutman, what about the opportunity for politics to be played out more positively at a local and state level? Well, I mean, certainly it's the case that local and state politics, uh, to the extent that the, the issues are truly local and state issues, tend to not fall into the predictable Democrat-Republican polarization that happens at the national level. There is certainly the possibility that we go back to a politics that is more state and local. Um, However, one of the things that that I've noticed uh, over the last several years, and certainly uh, this has become the case in the response to COVID crisis is that Democratic governors and Democratic states tend to all have one response and Republican uh, governors and Republican states tend to to move in tandem as well. And you know, one of the things that somewhat concerning is the extent to which we might see states kind of, I mean, there's always been this tension between federalism and the party within federalism and the party uh, that is in the White House tends to want stuff to be done at the national level, and the party that's out of the White House tends to be want stuff to be done at the local and state level. And you know this fight between the Democratic governors and President Trump it picks up on a lot of other trends of of state attorney generals binding together in partisan ways, and you know so it seems like it's it's a it's a bit of forum shifting on some of these crucial policies. And it just seems like a lot of these local things devolving to the local level doesn't necessarily reduce polarization. It it just makes the level of power question a polarized question. And yet there have been other examples, though, of, of Republican governors of, say, Massachusetts, Maryland and Ohio, who have not responded at all in lockstep to the White House or even to other Republican governors. So there have been exceptions to that, right? Uh, yeah, certainly. And I mean, Massachusetts and Maryland are both basically Democratic states with Republican governors who are you know, basically you know, moderate Republicans who probably would fit more in line with the, the National Democratic Party than the Republican Party. Ohio, uh, you know, DeWine is, I think, kind of the exception among somewhat mainstream uh, Republican governors. So we are talking about the impact of COVID on civic engagement um, and, and political change. And I just wondered whether there's anything from this crisis, any of you, that surprised you, that has come about that, that 
in either a good or, or a terrible way um, that, that you really didn't expect, even, even a few weeks ago? Yeah, I feel like, and of course, I didn't know this until it happened. I feel like I actually had a level of immigrant naivete about the power of my adopted country. I, you know, I came to the States when I was 10 with my parents seeking the American dream. And I have to to every extent possible attained that. I have a world-class education. I own my own business. I live a middle-class existence. And so I feel like uh, the the notion that you can make it in the U.S. if you work as hard, I really, really uh, shape who I am, except up until the point that I saw nurses who couldn't have protective equipment, except until the point that I heard from my friends who couldn't go bury their their siblings or their uncles or their parents, except until the point where people are being found dead in apartments because in my home city of New York, where I grew up, it has completely shattered my sense of the, not even the might, but the will of the United States to be a great nation. And that to me has been completely heartbreaking because I bought into it. I bought into it and I worked through college, through grad school, you know, like did all of the things that made all of the sacrifices that you're supposed to make so that then you come out on the other side with a kind of existence that strengthens the country. Right. And this has completely upended my sense of that ideal that I bought into and worked so hard for. So it's been it's been difficult. It's been really difficult to to deal with that as someone who is still striving, as someone who has an eight and a 10 year old who wants them to have way more than she was able to attain herself. That's it's a very profound response. Anyone else want to add to that? This is Mila. I think what was really surprising to me is the sheer incompetence of the government because I thought, you know, Trump really, really wants to win re-election. And I thought that because of it, he would mount a government response that is so forceful and so good that people would have no choice but to elect him again. And it would be one of those things where it was a side effect, you know, a side effect of him wanting to win the election, that he would have a proper response. And I, it's incredibly infuriating um, and sad. And everything that Jaleka is saying is so true. There's so many stories. And I have to say that as an Asian American to now live in an environment where Asian Americans are being attacked because everybody thinks that we're Chinese and we're not obviously all Chinese. Um, it's, uh, it's really scary. I didn't think I was going to see this kind of time in my life. Before we finish our podcast, I, I want to just ask you about the impact of this crisis on organizing uh, whether it's protests or whether it's just bringing people together. Kara uh, from Democracy Matters, how, how would you respond? So it, it has most certainly impacted the way we, we organize. As I look at the issues I'm most directly involved in, um, this year I'm, I'm a commissioner on the Virginia State Complete Count Commission for the 2020 Census. And so organizing around ensuring a complete count in the 2020 Census, which 
will affect political representation for the next decade, which will affect um, the distribution of federal funds to state and and local communities. Um, you know, this this crisis has profoundly affected our ability to reach people to explain why the census matters to get people to to complete the census, and especially students with whom I work at James Madison University. Um, on the other hand, voting has also become much more challenging as well, reaching students in that way. I think we use in-person uh, programming and communication in so many ways. You know, I think I, for one, had you know taken that for granted um, in a lot of ways. At the same time, you know, we we. We do a lot of organizing on social media um, and through group chats. And so but but I think this has revealed that 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 is just it's not sufficient. Right. Um, That the social networks and digital interaction is just is just not enough. And and that we do really need to have that social connection um, in order to have our voices heard. And so I, I think that's one thing coming out of this, um, you know, that we want to innovate. We want to be able to reach people in, in new and different ways. Um, you know, we, we've had virtual town halls planned with political leaders um, and uh, debates ahead of elections here in Virginia. And we've moved those online. But it's it's just not the same as 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 being in person. And and I think it's something that we're all longing for and and missing during this time. And and I'm hoping that, you know, we'll, we'll be able to return to that sooner rather than than later. It's a good way to end. Kara Ong Whaley from Democracy Matters, Lee Drutman from Politics in Question, Jaleika Lantigua Williams from 70 Million, Mila Atmos from Future Hindsight. Thanks for joining me. I'm Richard Davies. We've been talking about Democracy in the Time of COVID-19, a series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.